writing, blogging, podcasting, different types of storytelling with Joey Ayoub, co-founder of the Hummus for Thought podcast for this episode of the Beirut Banyan. momentum, if you want, or at least in a sustained level, as Tripoli or Nabatiye. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that the protests in Beirut have been, haven't been significant, obviously they have been. Uh, but in Tripoli uh, and in Nabatiye, we've seen a kind of a very conscious uh, opposition to sectarianism because those are two regions that have obviously been especially affected by sectarianism, uh, not that the rest of the country hasn't been either. That's, that's, that's what I meant, is that there is a decentralization that's taking place and that has allowed, I think, uh, protesters to feel that this is uh, this time it's really different. This time we are all in this together. And I'm, I'm assuming that you've been in Beirut since the uprising began. Yes, I went there the first day. So it started on the night of October 17th and I was down uh, the morning of the 18th. Okay, so that would have been Friday morning, just really hours after this began. Yes, yes, I was there until something like 7 or 8 a.m. Okay, and I was, I'm curious, now that we're in day 28 and mm-hmm. we're watching events unfold on TV, there's suddenly protests reaching Baabda Palace. Does the momentum feel the same now as it did on day one or day two? Yes, it does. Uh, the momentum is always very difficult to... Uh, to judge, like it's very difficult to say, well, today is better than yesterday, or today is, you know, worse than last week, or anything like that. It's just, it's always different. And I think a uh, a very strong part, uh, sorry, a very strong argument as to why this feels different is, is precisely that: is the fact that protesters are coming up with very different ways of uh, making their voices heard on a quasi-daily basis. From obviously the roadblocks, which were the, among the first ones, but now you have different ones, you know, like. Occupation of ministries, protesting in front of the Electricité du Liban. Mm-hmm. Now we have uh, just, I think there's something like a kilometers away from Abda Palace because, you know, they, they closed off the roads and mm-hmm. so on. And I want to just maybe pick your brain here. We, I mean, last night was a, was a tumultuous night. Uh, we had yes. the, the president, whether intentionally or not, seemed to rebuff the demonstrations and it, people took it as a direct insult. And it almost uh, reinvigorated the protests, at least on the street. It seemed like it brought back a lot of people that were gradually maybe declining, or it seemed like the numbers reached a peak again last night. And today there's an upswell. It feels like an upswell of emotion. And, and tragically, last night there was the loss of uh, one protester who died in Khaldi. Yes. Do you think that this, re- this movement or this revolution and I'm, I, they, maybe the words don't matter as much, but this uprising, this proper eu- euphoria that we're seeing, do you think there's a tipping point now that we can't go back from? I mean, do, in other words, do you think that whether the president stays or not, it's almost a fait accompli that his reign is over? Yes. Um, you know, the optimist in me would say yes. I am a bit hesitant uh, to just fully say yes, because... These warlords, uh, former warlords or current warlords, you know, they, they have their own resources as well. And I don't think we've necessarily seen all of them yet. Mm-hmm. That being said, uh, there is definitely something that has already been changed. There's this aura of 
respectability, of untouchability, mm-hmm. that has been broken. Uh, you know, we've seen this through the direct insults, obviously, on the chance that protesters have address, addressed towards these uh, politicians. Mm-hmm. But we're also seeing at the, um, by, from their own actions, the, the disconnect between what Owen said yesterday evening and even adding insult to injury and saying things es- essentially like take it or leave it to protesters. Yeah. Felt, you know, like the, the uh, let them eat cakes moment, you know, like they, he really is utterly disconnected from reality. We don't even know how much he has actually shown uh, footage of what people are saying or any, like he, I don't know how much he actually knows. And that is a very, the fact that it's a very legitimate question is in itself uh, scary. You know, I mean, it's it's sort of taken for granted now that these are pre-taped and perhaps highly edited interviews. It almost seems like he himself is unable to completely express his feelings as well. He seems caught off guard and perhaps ill-equipped to, to be the... Yeah. Yeah. You had two journalists who were pre-chosen, two men in their, I think, 50s. Yeah. And uh, I think Jérôme Bastille, also his son-in-law and former minister, was in the room. And that's about it. And that's what they called an interview. And it, it's very revealing, you know, it's very revealing that that's what they would consider an interview. Because at the end of the day, these politicians don't like questions. They don't like actual journalism, actual investigations, critical questions. That's not really the thing. That's, I mean, Owen has his, literally has the whole TV channel for himself, OTV. Mm-hmm. Uh, where obviously criticism of the, of the president is, uh, let's put it mildly, discouraged. Yeah, uh, that's, and that's how they're used to it. That they're used to being praised. They're used to having their way. They're used to being called for Khamet Rais or whatever you know, Your Excellency, and that sort of thing. Yeah, and they are they're just used to it. That's that's their world. And you know, Owen especially, that's been his world since what? Like he's been in the army since the fifties, uh, since the fifties. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, you know his history in the civil war, and then when he returned from exile in two thousand five, and so on, and then the whole joke at the time that we will he will definitely become president because that's the only thing he ever cared about and yeah. then he did become obviously yeah uh you know it's it's this is their world this is the world they live in they live in a world that has nothing to do with reality at this point now this maybe is opens the door to another question which is uh, kind of how i know you and uh, we we briefly emailed a few years ago and i saw yeah. that you were running a blog and a podcast called homeless for thought which yeah. uh, i know is not solely focused on Lebanon, and I know it's not particularly political, although it does cover that terrain, but I, uh, and I noticed that there was a recent episode on, uh, on covering, covering what's happening. And I wanted to ask you the role of this type of media, whether it's audio narration or whether it's citizen journalism. I, I spoke to uh, Jean Asir recently. He, uh, he works for Megaphone News. Yeah. And I've, I've spoken to sort of the younger generation that is in a sense, taking media into their own hands. Do you think that that is fundamental to the story? That what we're seeing now, the the role of traditional outlets, at least in Lebanon, do, do you see that media is, in a sense, beyond their control as well? That they're not able to narrate or they're not able to spin because they're not part of the conversation? And, and I mean, literally, they're not part of the conversation. Yes, that, that's a very, very big difference now i mean social media is you know it's become a cliche at this point but it is it is really changing the rules of the game um megaphone is a particularly good example because they're really doing an excellent job 
and you have something called the Muras and Murasila, which is going to come out at some point, uh, which is also promising to basically deliver this kind of in-depth journalism that is so lacking uh, in the traditional media. You do have uh, good journalists within bigger media outlets that are not necessarily the same as, let's say, the editor-in-chief. They do exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been until uh, fairly recently because they have resigned. You know, the, some journalists at Al Akbar that were fairly decent. Yes. But that didn't change the the, the editorial, uh, the stance of the editorial team. And you so, so you have those dynamics. It's not that no one who works on in TV in mainstream TV or in the mainstream news outlets uh, is a decent person. Mm-hmm. But their priorities are not the same because they're not. That's not what they are hired to do most of the time. Um, it's almost been left to the to the. It's almost become the job of like comedians and satirists and and you know online bloggers and other independent folks in general, who have been really highlighting these issues. Right. So I agree that there is a very very big uh, part to play uh, for these media outlets, and I think that this, the revolution has or the uprising, whatever. In the past month, we're seeing this becoming even more and more present. And I'm curious, how do you get your news? Is it do you simply go to Twitter and refresh the news feed? Is is it like uh, I mean, what is your go-to source for for what's happening? I have a, I have my a lot of folks that I kind of like a curated list uh-huh. of journalists and both mainstream and independents and so on that that I follow, and that's mainly on Twitter. Okay. And I do sometimes, you know, if there are uh, quotas and I cannot make them, I would basically turn on uh, LBC or Al Jadid because they have these live coverages on the streets. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily to agree with everything that is being said, but it's live coverage, so usually people get to say what whatever they want to say, more or less. I think I think and, I've run into the same situation as you, where my content is through my phone, and that's usually Twitter and and at most Facebook but when it comes to just watching it from home I turn on the TV and it's for those split screens you know these eight shots at a time exactly it's really that the the split screens like with all the criticism that uh, can be rightfully made against uh, some some of Al Jadid and LBC's coverage and there there are there is some criticism that can be made the split screen um, format I think has been really good has been really excellent because it just allows you to get a picture in a certain sense. You have, you know, Tripoli up on the left, Nabati down on the left, exactly. whatever, Beirut, whatever, that sort of thing. Yeah. And they have this uh, policy, essentially, of practice of, you know, asking someone in Tripoli or some people in Tripoli for 10 minutes, and then they go to the bar for 10 minutes or whatever. And you can really see that you have these people who are not in the same place, obviously, but that are more or less saying the same thing. Sometimes you would have uh, people who are sectarians who are saying, you know, that they are pro Nasrallah or they are pro Jaja or pro whatever. They do exist. So it's not like they're being banned or anything like that. But it's interesting to see that the narrative isn't really being monopolized by these same actors anymore. And that's, that's what's really interesting this time around. It's almost like the news cycle is now de- determined via social media portals and just the, the visual imagery is TV as opposed to the other way around. No one, yeah, I mean, it's almost like the journalists on TV are not the ones dictating the story. It's the citizen journalists on the ground that are kind of doing it themselves. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I don't know if maybe that's too optimistic of me, but I would agree that at least there's a much, much greater role by these, uh, whether citizen journalists, you know, I'm not technically a journalist, I'm just a writer, bloggers, writers, uh, just observers, people who are just documenting, you know. Mm-hmm. There has been a, uh, a, like a significant majority of the footage that I have used uh, to inspire myself when I'm writing uh, have come from just random people uploading the footage on, on social media, you know, on Twitter. Right. Uh, because uh, whether out of policy or just even in, in practice, uh, the main uh, journalism outlets cannot uh, really send everyone everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so to have people doing it themselves, really, and they have been really doing an excellent job. I, I really think that without these social media coverages, if you want, you wouldn't have had uh, the impact that you've had so far. I, I really don't think that this would have happened. I agree. And, you know, it's something particularly, something relevant to the youth bulge that we see on the streets, that the it's hard to tell what the average age is. I mean, you have all generations participating, but there's definitely a youth factor. And it almost seems like because this group, this segment of society is so advanced when it comes to technology, that it's almost like the ball is completely in their court at times. You know, I, uh, I was having a conversation about the, uh, the chants being used, oftentimes these melodic uh, insults to someone's mother that we all became accustomed to. And it could not be the older generation that creates that kind of music or melody. That's the youth. And there's, a, in a sense, an insensitivity towards slurs. And I, I almost think that for a moment, everyone is okay with it. That, in other words, you're, the grandparents are okay with their grandchildren cussing and going to the streets and protesting. And that is very unusual this sort of uh, willingness to participate and contribute to protests. And I don't know if you feel the same way when it comes to this sort of, the the usual, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, sorry, I definitely do. Uh, My own grandparents are usually extremely hesitant. Uh, I mean, they're still hesitant, but there's there's definitely, what they're seeing on television is breaking their own expectations of what Lebanon can or should be. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, yeah, I mean, I, I would credit millennials. I'm, I'm a millennial, and there's definitely a lot of millennials doing things, but I would especially credit the next generation, Generation Z, as they're called, because they are really living in a world where, I don't want to overplay this, of course, there are differences in classes and whatever, but generally speaking, they're living in a world where information is being spread so quickly to the point where it's almost impossible to filter. And you, ha- you have the, the risks that come alongside this as well, obviously, fake news and so on. But... The, the traditional mantras of power, the traditional way of doing things, does not have a language on social media, doesn't, doesn't have their own world. They cannot really create memes in the same way. They, their chants are very boring. They're so uncreative. They don't know how to do the same chants and the same signs. And, you know, there is a humor that is being used almost like a weapon on the streets. And it's, it's so... Um, so powerful because you can't really argue against humor it's just funny and so you can you can uh say that you know you don't want to laugh about Jabran Basile if you're pro Jabran Basile but it will be very difficult for you not to laugh if this joke is against someone else and so it creates this sort of of a world where only like you can you can only um isolate yourself from the this humor that I'm calling basically like weapon type of humor mm-hmm 
by turning everything off. That's the only way you can do it. And no one does that. Yeah, it almost seems like that is an, an impossible situation right now to literally switch it off. I think it's... Uh, it's I, I think it is impossible to disconnect from what's happening. Even the least politically minded person is involved to a degree. Even even uh, folks who were around Gibran Basile himself started chanting the Hela Hela Ho song and they just changed the lyrics yeah. to, to yeah. amplify Gibran Basile. Right. Like, they are, I, I don't think they understand the irony behind it because they have already given us this victory that we have made this chance so popular that even they had to uh, adopt it absolutely and the hezbollah folks they had this chant of because you know we were chanting killon yani killon all of them means all of them they had this chant of uh killon abadan killon like not everyone obviously right. like not everyone whatever and it's just not as catchy it's just so boring it makes no sense to chant why would you chant something like this and it just defeats the purpose. They try to co-op things, and it's not working. It's simply not working. So so much for producing your own talent, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I uh, I want to maybe get your perspective on a on a sort of tangential issue, and I know that you're yeah. you're doing your PhD in Europe, and in 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 Europe now the big thing is not Lebanon. It's the Berlin Wall, the celebration of 30 yeah. years since the Berlin Wall fell. And I, I've asked this question on several episodes so far, but I think I want to ask you in particular because you're able to see both. And I, I wanted to maybe know that, that when you're in Europe and you're watching people sort of relive that 30-year mark, relive unification, relive the end of the Cold War, and in a sense coming out of a coma, which was a decades-long rift on the European continent, do you feel like a same moment is happening on a much, much smaller scale? That Lebanon is re-emerging from its coma? Yeah, I guess I guess you, we can make that argument. And, and because there is this uh, uh, expression, you know, like the barrier of fear has been broken. Mm-hmm. And people have been using this. I think I heard this on the literally on the first night uh, when people were protesting, like within the second hour or something. Uh, uh, I, I saw it on some video on Twitter. Someone said it while he was in Beirut, I think, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess we can make that argument. I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a big fan of just making comparisons because you know there's always different things and different factors and sure, so on. Sure. But on, on a on a symbolic level, if you want, there's definitely something that has changed. And the question is really. Uh, how will we continue, how will we maintain the momentum and, and how will that energy be redirected? Will it always be on the streets? Will it be a, co- a combination of street stuff and maybe civil campaign stuff? Will it be, a, you know, I don't, I don't have the answer to that. Mm-hmm. And then the other question is how will the quote-unquote establishment, and these days it's especially, it especially means how will Mishnahon and Nabi and Nasrallah and Hariri to a certain extent how will how will they react? What are their next steps? Mm-hmm. Uh, then, when they take their next steps, how will the protesters react to those steps? So, the yesterday Mission Aoun speech infuriated a lot of people, and then he had people take to the streets again, to the point where it's almost become a joke. Like the, I think I forgot who said it, but I, many people have said this: that if politicians just learn to shut up and not say anything. <laughs> it, the protest momentum might fizzle out on its own because people are exhausted. They have work to go. You know, they have uh, they have uh, worries and concerns. 
Yeah. But they love talk and they, they are going on television every day or two. What was it yesterday or two days ago? There was like five different one of them who spoke on the same day. It's, it's incredible, really. It's something that we haven't seen before. And it shows that something as simple as simply disrupting uh, life as we know it in Lebanon, the economy, the roads, and so on, is scaring them so much, or is at least uh, annoying them enough that they are willing to, to talk as much. Now, this actually brings me to the final point, and I wanted to see uh, see your perspective here, that we you're, it, it's been 28 days. We're, we're hitting the one-month mark. And just, I know the comparison is not, it's not fully representative, but the Berlin Wall began breaking down the first night. And it almost seemed at that moment that it was over. The revolution had happened, and there was a new chapter being sort of ushered in. There was no going back. And I know Lebanon operates on its own timeline. I know things take time here. Everything takes longer than it should. And I'm just wondering, in terms of testing the patience of the average person who has seen their economic fortunes decline, and the banks, are, I think, are indefinitely closed. It's an open-ended strike. Do, do you sense that time is a factor here? That if this does not, if, if you don't have tangible results soon enough, that the momentum will simply, it'll naturally fizzle out, that people will not be able to keep this and, and not sustain it. Is there any concern on, on that end? Yes, uh, very much so. I mean, the politicians are playing a waiting game. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that it's it's very it's extremely obvious. You don't you don't need to have a degree in political science to see this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is always that risk. What I think will not happen is that the momentum will die out. I think what can happen, what has been happening in the past twenty eight days, is it goes up and down, and that's what we've been seeing really. Yeah, roadblocks uh, are mainly an instrument of anger, especially like where you want to really disrupt things extremely quickly. That's the method that you use. Mm-hmm. But it's not something that protesters are using for a long period of time. It's not like for a week, for example, right. because the you know other people, uh, service drivers, bus drivers, people need to go to school, whatever, that are especially affected by this, and it's not fair on them. Yeah. That being said. The, the worse things get, the more desperate people will get. So there are so many different risks, so many different fears of where this can go. My biggest fear has always been that the sectarian warlords will play this in the only way they have always played this, which is, you know, pit sex against one another. The good news is that up until now, this really hasn't worked. It really hasn't worked. Even yesterday, Allah, the, the man who was shot, yeah. belonged to the Druze community, and within like an hour, you had people in Beirut, people in Saida, people in Trablos, Tripoli, um, churches in Zahle were uh, ringing their bells. Yes. It, there is something that has that is being done that is exe- that is done in an extremely conscious way. Yeah. And I I have dif- difficulty seeing how you can undo this. Yeah. Like uh, really, the only way is like the worst possible way, which is like brute force and violence and everything. But for various reasons, and I'm sure as you know. It's, very, it's not as easy to do this in Lebanon because the state doesn't really have a monopoly on power in the first place. Right. And I, you know, I, I woke up this morning to a beautiful mural in Tripoli of Ale. I mean, it was just drawn within hours on a, on a giant wall. And it's absolutely special that the country is in this together. And I think looking back years from now, we're going to remember these moments the most. Whether it's the split screen of everyone protesting together 
or whether it's these symbolic gestures, all communities sort of reaching out to one another. I think these are going to be the moments that we take with us. Uh, Joey, just just a final point. Um, what would you like to see in terms of political effect? The protester on the street, if they want to be part of the equation, if they want to translate this energy into political gains and power, what would you recommend for the protesters to, to do in order for this not to die out, in order for this to be sustainable and actually in a way, confront the political class politically? I think when the time comes and we have elections, there has to be two things that happen. And I, I'm, not, I'm not saying this as you know a disconnected, self-appointed expert or whatever. This is something that we hear on the streets anyway. Mm-hmm. And that is that we need to have a proper election law Mm-hmm. One that does not depend on a sixteen quota as it has been so far. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that we will have to have very good independent candidates providing a, a progressive platform for, that people can uh, rally around. Yeah. So the other thing is that on the streets we hear our grievances that are very common. The, the uh, injustices relating to, to economic uh, grievances are a big one. Mm-hmm. The fact that women still cannot pass on the nationality, that's a very big one. You know, and so on and so forth. There will have to be candidates willing to uh, put themselves for place themselves forward who are able to argue very convincingly. I personally think that that's going to happen. I think Beirut Madinati in 2016 was an example of that. It had its limitations, definitely, but I, I don't think we will ever find something that will not have its limitations. Uh, but what the next steps will be, that's what's difficult. I think that this is what the next step should be, mm-hmm. but that's not to say that even if the, even if this I'm saying that this is what the next step should be, I'm not saying that the momentum on the street should ever fizzle out. For example, one thing that I think should never change is the politics of reclaiming space that we're seeing right now, especially in downtown Beirut. Yes, I yes. think this is something that is very powerful in itself, and it has the potential to create public spaces in a country, and especially in Beirut, which you know uh, saw a lot of the privatization, uh, especially in Lebanon, where we don't really have this concept of public space. If we're managing to create this, that in itself for me will be a significant, if even maybe fatal blow, blow sorry, to sectarianism. Because in the public, you don't have sects. In the public, nothing is owned by any sect or any warlord. By definition, it belongs to everyone. Yeah. And if we manage to get this, that for me would be a really, really significant uh, victory. You know, I'm uh, I'm old enough. I'm I'm hitting forty soon. I'm old enough to have been inside the egg when it was still being used regularly, and this is post-war. Yeah. The cinema became almost like an art space at times, and people at times partied there. So I I do have memories of the egg, but for me, the the really enchanting moment was walking to the Grand Theater which I had never seen. Ah, yes. And people... Did you manage to get in? I did, I did, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, A couple of weeks ago. So this, to me, was was priceless because that is really... I mean, we all know it's there. We've all been there thousands of times, just never got the chance to go inside. And it was was almost like walking, in a a way, to a locked-up part of the city that we broke free. And I think that is a very special moment. People reclaimed what is theirs. And very, uh, very peacefully. 
unfortunately one protester died slipped and fell but otherwise yeah, it was uh, i mean really magical moment to have unlocked this space and uh yeah i i really was taken aback by that moment uh joey i want to thank you for your time i know that the roads are a bit tricky today and we're doing this on skype even though we're both in beirut but i, I really appreciate your time and your thoughts on on what's happening my 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 pleasure honestly thank you episodes as the uprising continues to stay up to date subscribe to your preferred podcast platform or find us on our youtube channel and kindly consider a contribution through patreon in the details box below until next time i'm rani shatah and this is the beirut banyan